HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $194 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. If you want to know more about membership, visit specialtyfood.com. While on the site, check out the new Maker Prep course, a 12-step online program that will teach you how to take your specialty food product to the next level. In each podcast episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Julie Gallagher, Director of Content Development at the Specialty Food Association. We're so happy to bring you today's episode and also so pleased to be working with Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture and expanding the way eaters think about food. Our guest today is mixologist, restaurateur, and CPG industry veteran, Carl Franz Williams, founder of Uncle Waitley's Ginger Beer and Cocktail Mixer, which is based on a family recipe. Carl was recently named to Specialty Food Association's Breakout Talent to Watch list. Welcome, Carl. I'm so excited to be with you here today at the Winter Fancy Food Show. Thank you. Thank you so much. So you have an electrical engineering degree from Yale University. I do. Tell me about your career path and how it brought you to Ginger Beer. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, the, the one thing that I've always known that I wanted to be was an entrepreneur. And it was something that 
was very motivating for me, something that I felt, um, I just felt like that was the right path for me. And so I actually took, uh, like, became an engineer, or, or, you know, took engineering courses because I, I saw the opportunity to create, right? I saw engineering as problem solving and turning that problem, those problems into products. So solving a problem, a pro, uh, solving a problem and making a product out of it. Um, and so um, that was really my motivation. I, um, I started my career working as an engineer for Procter & Gamble. And um, um, I was working in the manufacturing plant um, for, that makes Sunny Delight and Hawaiian Punch. So that's kind of the other through line to my career is that it's always been about beverage in some way, <laughs> um, or almost always. Okay. Um, and so I, I worked in the plant for a while, but at Procter & Gamble, the all roads sort of lead to brand management and marketing. It's kind of like that is the, the, the um, what it's known for. That's like the, the, um, the master class that, that Procter teaches. And so I would see the brand managers, they would come into the plant and I was just like, I, I think that's so cool. Like I, I wanna try that. Um, and I'm not sure if I wanna, really wanna be in a, in, you know, in, an engineer at the end of the day. Um, and so I moved into brand management with Procter, did that for a few years, lived in Puerto Rico, and, um, and then when I left Puerto Rico, so Procter & Gamble did their U.S. Hispanic marketing for Puerto Rico, so I moved down there to do brand from there. Um, and, um, and then when I moved back to New York, I left Procter and went to work for Pepsi. Um, but while I was in Puerto Rico, I, there, was, there, were there were no coffee shops, that, like, but I liked there. Um, and so I decided to, I, I wrote a business plan to open a coffee, to open a coffee shop there. Um, and when I got the call from Pepsi and came back here, um, I kind of kept that plan. It was sort of a, a back pocket thing. And so I was living in Harlem, saw the opportunity to open a coffee shop because there still wasn't these coffee shops like what I wanted, what I imagined, and um, this artisanal experience thing. That, and so I opened a coffee shop. And that was my first entry into the restaurant you know, world. Um, and so fast forward, I'm at Pepsi, I'm kind of doing this coffee shop on the side. Still that entrepreneur bug is just kicking me. It's like, you know, Carl, you got, there's an opportunity to get out there and do even more. This is one thing. Um, and so Pepsi saw that, that spirit of, of like entrepreneurialism and, and they recognized an opportunity there. So I moved from um, the, um, into innovation, and started working on new product development for Pepsi. It was a great job um, and for inspiration for the new products. So the idea was like something far out, like how far out can you think? Like how, you know, um, and so I was talking to, you know, cool kids in the East Village and, you know, and mixologists. And I was blown away by the craft, um, you know, the idea of really being able to take an experience that a lot of people were just using to get hammered and make it into a culinary experience, to make it special. Um, to really honor the craft that went into creating a lot of spirits. And so I um, kind of fell in love with it and um, was at that point where Procter offered me the golden handcuffs and they were like, sorry, Pepsi offered me the golden handcuffs and no one leaves at that point. Um, it's arguable <laughs> whether I should have left at that point, but I knew that I, um, I, I had to give it a shot. If I didn't do it then, I never would have. And so I left Pepsi and opened 67 Orange Street, which was my first cocktail bar. Um, and so that's what kind of began my career as, as like, you know, I guess a restaurant tour, but with a real focus on craft and mixology bars. 
Um, and since then, I've opened multiple craft and mixology bars, and I immersed myself in not just being the business behind it, the business person behind the business, but also in being the artisan and being the you know and learning the craft and the trade. And so, I spent numerous hours studying the craft of bartending and of mixology, the history, the drinks, you know, the um, building and developing my palate, um, and. Um, um, and I feel like that's a, been a big part of why the concepts have done well is because, you know, that sort of the quality of the drinks we put out is, is bar none. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me, who is Uncle Waithley? Uh, so Uncle Waithley um, is or was my grandfather. I guess is my grandfather still, but mm-hmm. he's passed on. Um, and so there's one thing that I've, I've always been fascinated with history. Uh, and you know, I think there's so much in legacy and in storytelling. Um, and you know, uh, I find that you know, when I was in brand, consumers love a good story. You know, storytelling is at the essence of of um, of building a brand. And and then on the other side of it, like there's so much rich history um, that like so many nuanced stories that get lost. Um, there's oral history and then, and then there's what makes it into books and then, you know, and then what gets fact checked. So there's just this whole world of storytelling that I was mesmerized by. Um, and so that's always been a part of what I've done. If you look at the, the concepts, the bars that I've opened, most of them have like a historical angle to them. There's a story behind them. Um, and so when I set out to, to, to you know, open or to, to build Uncle Waithley's ginger beer, I, you know, I was solving a problem, so I, you know, I, I had a rum bar, and I couldn't find a ginger beer that had the nuance, um, that had the fresh taste, that I I knew. And so my family, being Caribbean, we made ginger beer, and as in many families in the Caribbean, it's 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 almost like a a, a, a source of pride. Families make these drinks, and there's this real historical and cultural legacy there. Um, and so I, I, I set out to, 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 you know, create this ginger beer because, like I said, there wasn't any that really resonated with me. Um, and when I did, I wanted to kind of connect back to something deep in, in, in sort of my history and, and, and my story. And my f- grandfather was an incredible man. He lived to be 100 years old, all, all on the island of St. Vincent. Health and well, wellness was, was very important to him throughout his life. He was a farmer. He raised ginger. He grew ginger. Um, he made ginger beer, and so, um, and then my dad has been making natural beverages at home, um, and you know he sells them as well. But he's been making these my, my whole life, and he kind of taught me my first lessons in I guess in mixology were watching my dad put flavors together in the drinks that he made, um, and so I knew that for this product, I, I couldn't take credit for at the end of the day for. Um, you know, all, all of how I got there. Mm-hmm. Like there was a part of it that was coming from how I was raised and what I learned from my, my, my father and grandfather and my family. Uh, and so that's why I, I named it after my grandfather. That's great. What a great story and what a great legacy. Um, Thank you. This is the first um, product that you have created for distribution in retail. Yes. And where? How is your product distributed? Where can it be found? Well, so um, we are um, we're in multiple. Um, so we're in Whole Foods. 
throughout the Northeast region. Uh, we're in Stop and Shop. We're in about 300 smaller specialty uh, markets around New York City uh, and New Jersey, Connecticut area. Um, we have some distribution um, in other pockets. So we're with Boisson, um, which is a non-alk retailer. And so we're in their LA market. Um, and then on premise, we've recently expanded to, um, to the Florida market. And so we're on premise at bars and restaurants in Florida, uh, obviously bars and restaurants throughout the New York and New Jersey, Connecticut area. Um, um, we're expanding further in, into the on-premise region with another distributor in, in Connecticut, so there'll be more accounts. So um, we're also online, we're on Amazon um, as well. Tell me about uh, what is so special about Scotch Bonnet peppers? Because I know that your ginger beer contains that. Yeah, so Scotch Bonnet pepper is ubiquitous throughout the Caribbean. It, it, it almost doesn't matter what island, um, you know, Scotch Bonnet pepper is there. And it's, it's this really flavorful pepper. So obviously it's, no, it's, it's hot, right? It's got, yeah. it's got heat, but it's also known for its flavor. And that flavor gives the food that it's in a really distinct taste. Um, and so you, you, you know it's there. And I like to say, like, it, it, the, the best way to think about it, it it's, it's just an authentically Caribbean taste. Okay. Um, and so when it's, I'm not the first, uh, you know, person to use pepper in a beverage, especially a ginger beverage, to enhance the, the ginger heat. But we're the only ones to, use, to do that with scotch bonnet pepper. And so what we're doing is we're extending the heat. We're adding an extra layer of crispness to what you get from, from ginger. So it's a spicy ginger beer. Um, but we're also giving it a distinctly Caribbean flavor. And so for the person who um, identifies with that flavor, they're like, wow, this is, I don't know why, but this is the most Caribbean ginger beer I've ever tasted, right? Mm -hmm. Because of that, that, just that little that nuance of adding the pepper. Do you work with a co-packer? We do. Um, we uh, we work with California Custom Beverages, um, and so they are. They've been a phenomenal partner to us so far. Uh, our process is completely unique, and we're not we're not making our ginger beer. Uh, we're making our ginger beer differently than than how others do. So we're not just using, you know, uh, a flavor house to make a flavor. We are taking fresh ginger. We're crushing it. We're, we're mixing it. Um, we're allowing it to rest. We go through a short fermentation um, slash maturation process. Um, it's then, um, you know, um, like I said, we, we, we press it using um, like a, a wine press, which again, very unique way of sort of doing this. Um, and then we, um, um, and then, you know, all the ingredients, everything that's going in there are all fresh ingredients. So we're using, you know, fresh ginger, fresh turmeric, um, you know, fresh lime juice, um, you know, um, and so it's, it gives it this, this, and then we, we use mineral water. And so, um, what the, the natural salts in that water, they preserve the freshness, they preserve, and they bring out all the different flavors. So you get this ginger beer that tastes, I mean, it tastes so fresh. It tastes like we just literally pressed it and gave you a bottle. Um, and, and so it makes it, and, and then the other aspect about it, the the vegetal notes that are in the Scotch bonnet allow it to, when it comes to mixing, um, those notes really blend well with um, vegetal type spirits. So particularly with, so like a tequila or a rum, um, you know, 
um, those two in particular, but, you know, uh, great with gin, great with whiskey, great with other spirits as well. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was wondering about the on-premise um, use of these beverages. Is there education that goes into, you know, teaching mixologists what this can be mixed with and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Education is a huge part of of our go-to-market strategy, of the way that we approach um, sales. And um, partially because we feel like we have a story to tell, and it's a great story. And, and so we want to be able to share that. Um, but then also because, um, like, we look at ourselves as sort of at, at, a, at, a, at a, a unique in, sort of uh, intersection. And so, yes, we're a ginger beer. Uh, and that's sort of one category. Um, yes, we make a great mixer, right? And, and there's a whole category of mixers. But then there's this sort of, of insight in, in the way that Caribbean consumers you know, consume ginger beer. It's an elevated beverage. It's one that you don't have to mix with alcohol, that families um, put a lot of pride and care into how they make. Um, and so um, um, it's actually, you know, there's this emerging alcohol-free movement. Yeah. And it's like, wow, like this was already there. This has been, this has been the way that consumers approach ginger beer for a long time. There just hasn't been a ginger beer on the market that, that, that allows for that. Mm-hmm. That is a, a great drink on its own. That's an elevated experience on its own. And so, when you take excuse me, when you take those unique sort of of um, the way that we're making this, the process that we're using, the um, the skill that comes from you know my years as as a mixologist and bartender, and really crafting this beverage, um, and then you add in the notes, the layers that we've done. This is your great alcohol-free go-to. You grab it and yeah. you have a drink. And so, but it's also how we're thinking about innovation. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of Caribbean flavors that you know that are just obvious. Everyone knows, right? Um, but there's a lot of nuanced flavor that are that are really special and unique that we can bring to the market. And so, what we're bringing is this interesting, these unique flavors, these flavors that are complex and and. And, and, and flavorful and, um, and sort of blend, come together the way a great cocktail would. Um, and we're using those and we're adding that on our ginger scotch bonnet base. So our first one, um, and that's, that's, that's this one here. And so this is um, Uncle Waithley's, um, our ginger beer with Caribbean sorrel. So sorrel is a classic drink um, in the Caribbean. It's very popular. It's made with hibiscus. Okay. Um, and then various spices, so like cinnamon, nutmeg, clove, things like that. And so we, we make sorrel, and then we, we um, add it to the ginger beer. And, and so oh, okay. and ginger is a common ingredient in sorrel as well. Mm-hmm. And so this drink is, um, I mean, it's, it's absolutely delicious. It, it, it brings like, you know, hibiscus has almost like this, this um, tart, almost cranberry-ish flavor. Okay. Um, and so you can imagine that with a little bit of sweetness, with some citrus on there, and then some spice notes. What do you have? You have a great cocktail. Right. <laughs> right? You have an amazing. And so, um, so that's that's one of the flavors we have. Our, our another is um, pimento wood smoked pineapple. And wow. so pimento wood is the wood used to jerk meats. Okay. Um, and so um, uh, grilled or smoked pineapple is common in mixology world it's like great it's a great mixer great flavor add yeah gives a lot of protein and froth to a drink and so we're we're adding 
we're taking our pineapple juice, we're smoking it with pimento wood and then adding it to our ginger beer. It's amazing. Sounds delicious. Um, we have a, a star anise and, and thyme. Um, so bringing in that sort of anise flavor, which goes, our anise flavor that goes really well with um, ginger. Ginger and anise go phenomenally well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things like that that we're doing. And so I'm excited for, you know, we kind of entered the market with, with the um, original Uncle right. Waithley's. Everything is on that base, that Uncle Waithley's ginger scotch bonnet base. But I am so excited for people to try the whole line and to really experience all these flavors. Um, and, you know, I think people are going to be blown away. So the ginger beer is the gateway. And then these other drinks, you know, once they're enjoying that one, they'll give these other ones a try. Exactly. Now, tell me a little bit about where these drinks are merchandised within the store, because you talked a little bit about the non-alcoholic beverages and how they're blowing up now. Are there separate sets in stores for those or? Yeah. So the Alk Free is um, one of the greatest. So there are two challenges that are that, that um, have been identified as, as the largest for for the segment. Um, one being taste, and um, and that's just because uh, there's so much. It's, it's so new, and and the community is really learning how to how to do this and how to uh, how to how to create these beverages and do that well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also something that, on that point in particular, we want to be leaders in helping that conversation. If you look at our go-to-market strategy, we we go into into on-premise accounts, bars and restaurants, and we talk about that. We talk about how do you build a great alcohol-free program? Um, how do you, um, you know, what are the components that you need to have to make sure that the drinks are, are amazing? Um, you know, how do you create, um, you know, um, uh, nuance and piquancy and things like that um, in the drinks? And so, um, so we go in and we do more than just say, hey, you know, buy our product. We go in and, and, we, and we educate and we teach about that. Um, so that's sort of one one challenge, and 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 that's how we're we're going after that on premise. But at, at retail, that is the second challenge, which is uh, availability. And a lot of retailers are t- are are to this day, really still trying to figure out where this section goes. Like, yeah, what where does Alk Free sit? In a in a is it you know. Um, is it with the sodas? Is it with, you know, alternative beverages? Is it in the mixer section? Um, does it deserve its entirely, its, in, its own section in, um, entirely? And I don't think that question has been fully answered by most retailers yet. Um, and so um, we have uh, found ourselves sort of straddling multiple locations. Uh, we're often merchandised with ginger beer, which is totally fine. Um, in some accounts, we're with the mixers, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some, you know, we're with the other out free drinks. Again, totally fine. Like we're we're happy in any of those spaces. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we just want consumers like the reaction when someone tries our products is just so cool. It's <laughs> so yeah. unreal Like people really enjoy it. And so we just want people to pick it up, try it and, and have that experience. Do you do sampling? In stores? Yes. Yeah, so sampling is a big part of our, our go-to-market strategy. Um, um, we, we're, we're a startup. We're a small brand. We don't have a lot of dollars to invest in in um, large sort of marketing efforts. And so we find that sampling, that, that getting people to try the products, in the liquor world, we call it liquid to lips, right? Like just getting liquid to lips and allowing people to taste it is a huge part of... of and so... It's also for us why on-premise becomes so important, because the bartender uh, becomes an advocate 
when we right. land an account. And that bartender is reaching, you know, dozens to hundreds of people every single week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we reach the bartender, we've now reached. And so, you know, we think of influencer marketing, that's the idea behind it. And one person can reach many. Um, but it's, 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 it's um, so it's kind of an influencer strategy if you want to think about it that way. But it's also um, the idea is that we're building awareness and penetration and using the, the, the bar as a way of doing that. Now, when the bartender mix it, uses your products to mix a drink, are, you know, is there visibility of the bottle to the, the customer or how does that work? So what we what we aim to do is to land on the menu. Right. So okay. like um, as a named product in a drink. Um, and so that that right there is, is, you know, is huge. We don't get that every time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they just put ginger beer, or, you know, or, uh, or hibiscus and ginger beer or something like that. Um, and so, um, you know, um, but we find that people will often ask, uh, especially if they're sitting at the bar, um, you know, they'll, they'll ask, like, what's in this? Like, how did you make this? You know, this tastes really great. What is this? Mm-hmm. And that right there, there is anything better than that word of mouth, that sort of expert person saying, hey, like, this is how I made this and this is why it tastes so good. Right. You know, like, you can't beat that. Right. And then that brand recognition carries into the grocery store. Exactly. That's wonderful. Um, So we're almost out of time. But before you go, we'd like for you to participate in our final segment called Take Five, where we pose five questions to our guests. But first, let's pause for a break. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, here are your five questions for our final segment, Take Five. What is your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? 
the name i mean the, the you, you just you say it's in the name specialty <laughs> um I've, I've spent my whole career i guess doing the artisanal thing um and doing things um and being inspired by people who are not just creative but who have a passion for the detail and to me that is what specialty that's what stands out in specialty food and drink as opposed to i guess regular food and drink okay and your product does look very special this packaging if you can hold up the bottle again sure um so it's just a glass bottle and with a beautiful gold label on it for for those of you who can't uh, who are just listening at home right now. Um, and then do you use a bottle opener to open it's that? It's a screw top. Oh, okay. Yeah, I so wouldn't have guessed that. It makes it super easy to sort of open it. And, you know, um, it's yeah. just a, you know, a little, twi- it's, it's a hard twist. Uh, you got to gotta put a little, okay. so some people prefer to still use a, a, a bottle opener. Um, but it's, it, is a, um, it is a twist. Okay. And then what's one thing that the Specialty Food Association has made easier for you as a specialty food business owner? Well, I, I would say um, creating broad awareness of the idea that there are... Um, so it's very easy for a general market consumer to sort of, um, um, sort of prior, I guess, you know, to the... To, to think of food and drink as um, and just what was there, what they saw, what they knew, uh, what was common. Mm-hmm. And, and what the Specialty Food uh, Association has done is they've opened that conversation up. They've introduced buyers um, and retailers and distributors to a whole range of products who've then gone and educated their, um, their customers and their consumers on those products. And so... Um, what you find now is like people go out and they seek out unique special products. They look for, um, you know, unique taste and flavors. They, you know, they, they look for things that um, they're not, they're not, they don't run away from the idea of something like a scotch bonnet pepper, you know, or, or something that they haven't heard of. There, there's more curiosity around that. Um, and then when you add the wellness layer on top of that, you know that 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 some of these things actually can improve health and and um, I think people are much more willing to try different things. Okay, and if you weren't running businesses, what would you be doing? If I wasn't running them, I'd probably be sitting <laughs> down. At, you know, I, I would be, um, I, you know, I I would be I would probably still be crafting. You know, I'd mm-hmm. probably still be making. Um, you know cool stuff cool cool beverages you know i could Uh i i love this like i i am the master blender for this i'm in the plant i'm there when we're mixing the product um you know the recipes are my recipes i've literally created them um you know um our investors like to say like like, we guess we're saving money because our product development (laughs) you know (laughs) actually comes from our ceo um and so I, i would be doing that you know i'd probably be doing it in a really beautiful place um, mm-hmm. like the Caribbean. Um, and, um, you know, and I love, I, I literally love hosting. I love like having, creating something and then sharing it mm-hmm. and having people enjoy that. Like there's, to me that that's like the ultimate reward is really, 
you put this work into, into creating something and then you serve it and so on. So I would be doing that. It, it, I might not be doing it for money, but I'd be doing it for the joy of it. Great. That's wonderful. And what's one piece of advice you'd give to a new specialty food business entrepreneur who's just starting out? Yeah, I mean, I think it gets it becomes really important pretty quickly to understand your business. Um, what are the drivers? And by the drivers, I mean sort of um, on a few fronts. Unit economics. How do you get your product to a point where um, where the cost makes sense? Where there's because you can't scale a product like it's not a hobby until it can become a business. Until it's a it is a hobby until it can become a business, and it can't become a business if the margins aren't there. Mm -hmm. You know, so really getting to understand your unit economics and having a plan to get them to where they make sense, um, to where they are hitting that 30% minimum threshold and, and, and going up from there. Um, and, and so that's, that's one. The, the, the other, uh, so, you know, so that's part of it. And it's also, how do you get to market? Like, what is it? What, how are you going to do that? How do, how, what are the dynamics that drive distribution for your product? Um, beverage is a very expensive game. Um, you know, there are a few other categories in retail where a few companies control an entire aisle, end to end, as in beverage. Um, and so um, for new brands to break into the beverage space, they have to be, they have to be able to get to scale um, relatively quickly. They have to be able to invest um, in, in, in gaining shelf space. And that's really hard. Um, and that takes some dollars. So. Um, and so you have to understand those dynamics, mm -hmm. um, and you have to figure out if that if that makes sense for you. If that's something that you want to do, that's an approach you want to take. Um, I mentioned that we were doing a lot on premise. On premise, the dynamics are different. Um, it's about landing a distributor that makes sense for um, for on premise accounts, and they're different than the ones that necessarily make sense for a retail account. Um, mm -hmm. So really learning the dynamics of how you get to market, how you create distribution, how you create availability for your products um, is the second thing. So unit economics and understanding how you create um, um, you know, availability are the two, two first things. And, and, then, and then the third thing, which as a marketer, I can never leave out, right? I, I, I began my career in brand and marketing and, you know, um, is like, how do you create awareness? How do you build traction? How do you create um, interest and intrigue? You know, what's your method for storytelling? Is there an, a story that is authentic and true? Um, I think authenticity is so important. Consumers can see through brands who are fake, who make up stories, who are just putting a product out there to put a product out there. who are just trying to seize on a trend as opposed to building something that is authentic and meaningful. Mm -hmm. And then the last question, um, how do you define specialty food? Um, well, I, you know, I, I think I may have answered this, but I... I, I, I think I, so, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say just, just it, it is food and or drink that is, um, uh, that is crafted, that, is, that has um, a story to it that the, the maker has put a good amount of care into what it is um, and that it's not um, and that they didn't get there it's not just a, a sort of run of the mill um, same thing that everyone else is doing there's a nuance to it so mm -hmm. um, 
I think the idea of special and nuance are probably synonyms. Like, and so you put the two together, and, and that's what specialty food means to me. Okay. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about this show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to follow wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. Special thanks to Carl and to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast. Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.